Welcome to Buzzworthy. I'm your host, Shalicia Harris, and today we're going to kick off this episode with a few words from the International Women's Day website. Imagine a gender equal world, a world free of bias, stereotypes, and discrimination, a world that's diverse, equitable, and inclusive. A world where difference is valued and celebrated. Together, we can forge women's equality. Collectively, we can all break the bias. Today, we just jump into Rachel's story that will give us a great understanding of what it means to be resilient, a key attribute for any entrepreneur. Let's start with Rachel's story. I know you'd mentioned you got diagnosed with cervical cancer at the age of 28 and only two years ago, I was 28 and I can't imagine what that would have been like. That would have been so life-changing at such a young age, but you took that experience and just turned it into this incredible company that is going to hopefully change the way people look at women and treat them and hopefully get earlier diagnosis and things like that for, for a better, longer life for them. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So that is, that's what happened. Um, it really kind of took me out of left field. Um, you know, I don't think anybody plans for these things to happen, but Mm. I think part of the problem was too, was, um, I did everything right. I got my pap smears and I did, I was on top of my health and I was really, you know, like actually on top of things. And Mm -hmm. it still happened that within a year I went from a clear pap smear all the way to a fully staged tumor. And, you know, they say that cervical cancer takes like seven years to develop. So did it develop in one year? Did they miss it? Was something Mm -hmm. done wrong? Like all those things run through your head, but then you get to a point where you're like, okay, well, the past is in the past, how this happened. And you know, why it happened is, is beyond the fact. Now I have to deal with what's going on now. Yeah. Um, and so, and yeah, it was, um, one of the toughest things I've had to do in my life, a hundred percent, uh, you know, it's a very quick process. So, you know, in Canada, we have a public system, but when you are on a spectrum of, um, life changing diseases, I guess you could say, or life altering diseases, um, I got hustled through pretty quickly. So I'm thankful for that. Um, but yeah, I, I had to make a decision. So I was diagnosed in like the end of May, 2019, um, or sorry, end of April, 2019, May was all of my scans and trying to figure out how bad it was and if it Mm -hmm. spread and all of these things. Um, and in that process of trying to figure out like, am I dying? Um, I also had to, you know, prepare for, becoming a mother. Mm-hmm. And that was something that I didn't even have in my plans. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately got ripped away from me. So I started the fertility process and they needed one extra week to be able to get the hormones and extract and freeze eggs, um, from my body and they wouldn't give it to me, my doctors. And so I lost my whole chance in having my own children, yeah. um, through that process. And before I even started my company, hi Ivy, I almost started a company in like the decision-making process in very, very life-changing situations because Mm -hmm. that decision-making process, if that was handled properly from the beginning for me, I would have been able to, um, you know, maybe actually have some eggs frozen. Mm -hmm. Um, but even then that whole process of like, you're fighting for your life and then they hand you over a book and say, pick a father for your kid. It's very, it's a lot. It's (laughs) It's a lot. (laughs) Yeah. And how can you really think about that in this moment? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So 
It was a interesting experience. I I'll be honest with you. Um, personally and mentally, I don't think I've worked through that yet. Um, I've kind of like shelved that in the back of my mind. And it's something that I haven't um, mentally worked through yet. Uh, that yeah. whole concept of like, I can't have kids of my own and I was mm-hmm. fully able to. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I was on the operating table by June 5th, 2019. And, um, you know, from there went into radiation and it was, uh, yeah, it was a very, very tough battle. Yeah. And I know recently you mentioned on LinkedIn um, about a new announcement, and I I commend you for for constantly going. And I think that's a theme we will see this month for International Women's Month on this podcast: is adversity after adversity, and you still keep going. And how does this new diagnosis? change or impact you and the work that you're doing? (sighs) It's an ongoing thing. So I I was uh, recently diagnosed with uh, vulvar cancer. Um, So separate from my cervical uh, caused by the same thing. Okay. So um, different diagnoses all caused by the HPV virus. Um, Yeah, my body just can't seem to fight it off. Uh, and I've done everything under the sun. And I think, you know, part of what the problem is, is I already have a terrible immune system, mm-hmm. throw in all the stuff that happened fighting the first cancer that just lowers your immune system for the second. Correct. Um, it's, a, it's, it's, it's scary. Don't get me wrong. I think, and I hate to say this, but it's easier the second time around, um, only because I know the process, you know right? What to and expect. I, yeah. I know what to expect. I know that I'm not dying. I know that I'm not, um, you know, in a, I'm going to go through the system and I'm going to go into treatment and I'm going to get what I need to get done. And it's just going to be this day by day thing. Mm-hmm. And I think another thing I like to say is, yes, I keep going, um, part of what I do is, is really a distraction away from thinking about this all the time, because, you know, when you are diagnosed with cancer, let alone twice, (laughs) um, that can eat you alive. Right. And it can Mm -hmm. be really, really disabling. Um, and nor I always say, nor do I expect any woman or a man for that, that matter to take the same approach that I did. Because I know that some people, it's it's life altering. They have kids, they have families, they have you know their own issues. That this is something that can knock them on their feet for the rest of their life, yeah. um, and maybe never get up from it. So, yes, I persist and I keep going and I keep pushing and I keep innovating and I keep doing the things that I do. But I don't expect everyone to have that same story. Right. I do it as a distraction. I do it as a way to get my mind off of things, to keep me going in a different direction. And that I don't sit here and constantly think about all the crappy things that happened to me and continue Mm -hmm. to happen to me. It's just, um, I I'm happy that I get to do something I love and make an impact on others, um, that may be going through this and maybe myself as well in that process is just a little bit selfish in what I'm doing. Yeah. Uh, Cause I also want to do it myself. Um, but yeah, but that's really... a little bit ter- therapeutic as well too. You of know, course. it's yes. like, Hey, I have a problem and I'm doing something to make it better. If not for myself, for someone else. Exactly. That's yeah. true. That's very true. So yeah, it's, um, yeah, I, I will say this, that cancer really shook up my world. Um, I had very high expectations for myself. I had very high, you know, expectations on my life milestones and what I'm supposed to achieve and when and how. Um, and I was really, really, you know, cautious about what I put out there, who I am, how I present myself. And as soon as I got like slapped in the face with this, like, um, you know, you may or may not be here. I was just like, screw it, screw it. 
and I like I got engaged like three months into a relationship and just I went for it and I said I don't care what people say anymore I don't care what the life expectations are on women like I don't have to have a family to be a woman right I don't have to you know have my my all my womenly parts to be a woman right um and I don't have to live for anybody else but myself now Mm -hmm. and you don't realize that until these things happen and now it's like I feel like all the risks and things that I could take and the repercussions of them don't have as much impact on me anymore and I think that's why with this you know new business that I started I was able to just put myself out there and get denied and be like, all right, on to the next, on to the next, on to the next, and keep going um, through the adversity because it's just one day at a time. And as long as you're having fun with it, like that's all I care about now. It's just like, does it make me happy? Does it make me, you know, walk away and and you know feel good? Um, yeah. that's all I care about. So that's incredible because now you must look at every day as sort of this is, this is a day. I'm just going to live it to its fullest. I'm going to do everything I possibly can to do in it, but not necessarily forgetting the future and some of the goals that you have. It's, you're still constantly working towards that, but, you know, making those in the moment, um, choices even better for today instead of just for tomorrow. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I, I like that you talked about, you know, you had all these ambitions for yourself and all these big milestones, but you've previously had a business and, yeah. you know, it, it went quite successfully. Tell, tell us a little bit more about it. Yeah. So, um, I, uh, I did my undergrad at York uh, in Toronto, I, um, did it in business. I was kind of forced. I, I I say forced, I wasn't really forced, but definitely (laughs) felt the pressure of continuing on my, my education. And so I went and I did my master's and I was going to do an MBA and, um, my father had actually, uh, kind of showed me and promoted me the MBET program at university of Waterloo, and it's very focused on entrepreneurship. And so very different from an MBA, like very hands-on get, you know, get dirty in the mm-hmm. ways of creating a business. And so I went into that program, um, in the first week of that program, um, we had this new venture creation course and the professor who is now a like lifelong friend of mine, um, pretty much said, you have five minutes to come up with a business idea and you have to pitch it in front of the class. And so I spent, I think I would say I spent like three minutes panicking and two minutes, like trying to come (laughs) up with something. Um, and at the time I was living, breathing, eating, sleeping, um, racing at the time. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, have a previous past of racing motorcycles. Um, I got very injured. (laughs) And so, um, right around 17 and by then I had my driver's license. So I was like, okay, what's better than two wheels? Well, four. And so I got into, you know, cars and, and car racing. So at the time I was really into the automotive stuff. I was at the track every weekend. I, you know, was like living that every single day. And, um, I just kind of took what I knew and, and pitched this completely bogus idea, which turned into, um, the mod market and the mod market essentially was a, um, aftermarket automotive e-commerce platform that used Mm -hmm. augmented reality and 3d to modify your vehicle. Um, so kind of think of like need for speed, but you know, for real cars and real parts. Um, and yeah, it was a journey. I'm not going to lie. A lot of ups and downs. I learned a lot through the process. It was like a five-year thing. Uh, I did end up exiting the company. I sold off the IP and, uh, was it a great exit? No, but, um, you know, it wasn't my like Instagram worthy, like laying on the beach and, you know, South <laughs> of France or something, but, um, it's, 
it allowed me to learn so much of this process and what to do and not to do during, um, you know, starting a company and running a team and what that looks like and creating a product of value. And, you know, that company went from like being defunct to pitching at a giant multi or national company, um, as an innovation project that morphed into a strategic initiative. And I was working with upper management and, you know, they're a couple billion dollar company, no big deal. Um, and it was, it was, it was crazy, like a crazy, crazy time. And I was still quite young, um, Mm -hmm. and just learning the process and kind of figuring it out as I go, um, as well as learning sales and all of these things. So it was a great, great experience. Um, but at the end of it, I was really over it. Like I, I wanted to get out of it. I wanted to move on. Um, and it came to a point where I was just like, all right, this needs to be in somebody else's hands. And I, I can only take it so far before it, it needs to go and morph into something else. Yeah. That's really interesting and cool. And obviously I'm learning so much about you, motorcycle racing, then in the automotive industry, getting deeper from like an innovative standpoint, you seem to come into spaces where, you know, you don't typically belong. You don't fit that mold of, you know, this is who should be doing something like this. And what was that experience like being in sort of the automotive space? Did you like as a woman, did you feel out of place in, in sort of that space a little bit? Did you see enough representation of yourself um, as you sort of went through this business for five years? <laughs> no and no. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was, it was very much an experience. Um, to be honest with you, and I'm going to be straight, straight, straight up with you. Um, my my family always told me that, well, didn't even tell me, they just kind of insinuated and always kind of act in the way that gender was never a lens, right? You can do whatever you want. I was racing, you know, motorcycles from the age of like 10, um, you know, playing hockey, um, getting into all of these things that were very like non-traditional female, I guess you could say. And, um, that lens was never a thing for me. My father was very like pushed me into, into roles. Even when I was young, like 15, 16, um, would put me on like trading floors, uh, in Toronto and, and it's all men in there. Um, you know, I never really saw gender as a lens until I got into business and, you know, even the first things I always noticed the absence of women, that always was a thing. It, whether I was racing, whether I was, um, you know, in the automotive industry, I saw that and it didn't really hit me until, um, I went out to sell my software Mm -hmm. and when I was on the floor, um, so there's a big trade show that happens every year in Vegas in this industry. And I would go out on that floor and try to sell my software. And I would have my partner with me uh, who was male and I would be telling them something and they'd be answering questions to him, to him. Yes. And I noticed this pattern of, Oh, she's a woman. She doesn't know what she's talking about. And it got to a point where you know, I was wearing full business suit and I was getting hollered at on this professional floor of salesmen. And I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, is this really like what it comes down to? I'm wearing a full suit and you're and like still happening. hollering at me. Yeah. Like, are you kidding me? So I really realized now I just, what I ended up doing was like, okay, you want to talk to my partner? Now my partner is my salesman. <laughs> like, <laughs> I just ended up coaching him to do all my sales for me. Um, and that's, I just had to kind of adapt to it as I went. And, you know, throughout that business, I was in and out of other jobs as well. And I really uh, came up against some, I was in a big corporate role uh, through that business as well um, at a financial institution in Canada. And there was a big, big issue, a gender issue where I kind of outshone my boss, I guess you could say, who was a male at the time. And 
he felt threatened. And I saw that corporate side of like trying to bring someone down and the female lens and that type of thing. Um, and then it really hit me. I'm like, this is actually a thing like this cannot be ignored. Um, and it's, it's something that needs to be addressed. And so, you know, I, I've lived through it. I always, I try not to say, just keep pushing on, you know, women, we just got to keep going. Like there's actual fundamental changes that have to happen and you have to be cognizant of it. Um, whether you're employer and employee, you see others uh, going through those situations. It's, it's there and it's real. It is very, very real. I, I definitely see it happen time and time again in the corporate space as well. And it's, it's unfortunate that you shining as yourself and just being the great person you someone just over your head can, can alter your path so significantly. Yes. And it's very unfortunate and it happens way too often. Yeah. 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 A hundred percent. Yeah. And so do you think that was sort of what sort of pushed you back into this world of, you know, curating a space for yourself where you're like really the moon or the universe is the limit where you can develop whatever you want in whatever space you want to and sort of grow yourself organically in that way? I guess you could say that. I think part of it too is um, I'm not risk adverse. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of obvious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my family, my family is, um, you know, my father is an entrepreneur and my mom is very much like she's, she's risk adverse, but she still loves kind of that risky element of things. Um, mm-hmm. I grew up in that environment and I grew up being kind of a, I guess you could say like pushing the limits and stuff like, you know, racing and stuff like that. Um, so I think part of it was that thrill Mm-hmm. Um, of taking on a risk, I think is a big thing for me. Um, learning something new, I think is a big thing for me as well. Like if it's not challenging me, it's not, it's not going to hold my attention. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like, it's just trying to find something that like I'm passionate about that I want to wake up every day and do, um, when I hit a point when I don't want to do it, then I don't want to do it. And I just step away and I step back. Um, and I've done it multiple times in multiple different roles and things in my life, whether it's hobbies or whether it's, you know, businesses or career paths. Um, yeah, I just want to always make sure that I'm challenging myself and that I, um, have that thrill and I'm learning something new. I like that you have sort of that model for yourself. But if someone is stuck in a space where um, they're not sure if they should move on or, you know, what their next step should be, because this isn't giving them the level of excitement they want anymore. um, How can, how can they make that decision? Like to say, you know, it really does come down to the person and I don't think there's a rule book or framework that works for everyone, but what would you suggest them do to figure out, do I stay or do I move on? <laughs> oh my gosh, the million dollar question. I think it, <laughs> I think it's different for everyone, right? I, mm-hmm. I always say, and I'm sure everyone who's listening is probably going to be like, oh gosh, she says this all the damn time. Um, taking a risk is not jumping off a cliff without a parachute. Cause that would be stupid. Right. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> like, absolutely. Right. Um, <laughs> I mean, unless you have other motivations in life, but, um, the, you can prepare yourself to make those decisions and set yourself up for what could be a blow, um, to be successful and to be a good transition for you. Um, some people aren't ready. Some people are in life situations where they can't make that decision. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, whether it's family, whether it's people who rely on them, um, whether they just don't know what they want to do. Right. I think part of it is going out there, putting yourself out there and, and finding what you do love and enjoy and just throw yourself into things like, I just decided last year I was going to start raising monarch butterflies. I had no idea what I was doing, but I just did it and I learned it and now I love it. Right. And it's kind of a passion of mine now, but, um, 
you know, you don't know until you try, right? And and learn about it and kind of put yourself out there. And I don't think people do that enough, right? Because things are scary and taking on something new, there's a chance of failure. But I think part of it is how you look at failure too. If you look at failure as this negative thing, you're never going to come out of it, right? Versus Mm -hmm. if you look at it as, all right, this is a learning experience of what I want for my future, right? Or I want to prevent from happening again. That's kind of the biggest thing um, that I go about. And at the same time, part of it is also what success means to you. Um, You know, success to me is that I can wake up every single day, like A, with a life because, you know, death was brushed up against me, Mm -hmm. right? But also to doing something that makes me happy. That's all that I care about. I don't care if I have a million dollars in the bank. I don't care if I, you know, have the nicest things in the world. If I get to do the things that I love and it makes me happy and I wake up every day doing that, then that's all that matters to me. And those are the types of things you have to reflect on before you make a decision and know that you will land on your feet. Like everyone always does. You will figure it out. And I think often especially younger people, when you don't know what you want to do, um, there's all this pressure wrapped around in it, right? It's just about taking a leap and doing, doing it for you. Like nobody else should have a say in this whatsoever. But I, I know how tough it can be. And I don't underestimate that there are situations where people just can't do it. And yeah. it takes a lot more methodical planning and, and figuring that out over time. And there are other pressures, but I think the fundamentals of what you're saying is really exposure, getting yourself the Mm -hmm. exposure that you need and sort of the right help will come to you. And that's something I actually learned just this past September when I stepped away from my full-time role in corporate to, to push my startup forward was I didn't realize how many people were there to help you. And it's once you've opened up yourself to that world, it's, it just comes flooding in. Sometimes you don't know what to do with all of the help, (laughs) but it's definitely a good problem to have. And I think this was a really great segue to jump right back to high Ivy as we Mm -hmm. sort of diverted into your previous business. And now you're officially a serial entrepreneur, which is exciting. Yeah, (laughs) I guess. (laughs) But with high Ivy, um, how long after your automotive business did, did high Ivy come about? Yeah. So I wrap that up. Um, probably about a, a year and a bit before, Um, I had went back to work, uh, and I was working at Laurier and I was running their, uh, startup incubator. So I was actually counseling and coaching startups. Um, I did that for about a year and, uh, yeah, I kind of, I got sick of it. Like it was kind of like back in corporate world again. And I was Mm -hmm. just like, Oh, you know, I got, I kind of hit my limit with it. And, um, yeah, that were, you know, two weeks after I left that role, I got my cancer diagnosis. So it was very, um, abrupt and it kind of like my path got laid out for me just by chance and coincidence, I guess you could say. Um, but yeah, so it was about, I actually, I remember when I started my role at Laurier, I said, I am not going to start a business. I'm not starting a business. I am not starting (laughs) A business. And I think, I, I think my goal was like to try to get past the year. I think I did it, but just by a hair before I, yeah. I came up with an idea again, but, um, yeah, it kind of, it happened just because I was on bed rest after my surgery. And, um, honestly, there's not much you can do. Like I couldn't move. My body was very, you know, stagnant, but my brain was fully functioning. So I was like, well, how am I going to keep myself busy? And through my process of diagnoses, I had connected with these Facebook groups of women. So there's about like tens of thousands of women on these, these Facebook groups um, all across the world who have dealt with cervical cancer. Mm-hmm. And I just saw this ongoing like scream for help. 
around um, their diagnoses, what happens after their treatments and kind of their quality of life moving forward. And I had actually had pelvic health issues prior. So about 11 years prior, um, I had a pretty crappy situation that happened to me. Um, it was an emergency situation. I had a surgery, I was awake and I felt the whole thing. And it was very like, yeah. And I got a lot of PTSD from it. Yeah. Um, and through that, uh, developed really significant pelvic floor issues. And so I was given this like terrible static dilator back then. So this is like, you know, now 12 years old or so. Um, and essentially this is still today what the uh, standard of care is. And the women were just like, I hate this thing. I cannot use this thing. Like who wants to use this? This is so mechanical cold. It feels unnatural. Like how do I, how do I go about this process? Do I just close up and give up my, my sex life and my relationships and just move on? Or do I try to fight for this? Mm-hmm. And when I looked into all of this and I started to do the research, I just realized I'm like, holy cow, somebody needs to pull up their socks and innovate on this damn thing. Because it was, and I learned it was created by a man in 1938 and nothing had changed since then. And I'm like, all right, this needs a woman's touch (laughs) and it needs to be updated. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, yeah, so I, I took on the challenge of um, putting something together. We put together a really crappy PowerPoint deck of like clip art to show what a product could look like. And I started my radiation treatments in September. Uh, so, you know, I, I had my surgery in June. Um, radiation started in September. And that time frame pulled something together in order to pitch to the doctors in the radiation ward. Um, you're there full time every day. So you get to know these people pretty well. And, um, yeah, I just use it as an opportunity to kind of keep my mind off of radiation, which was terrible. Um, but also just to kind of get some of that early feedback on, um, the problem space and like the medical side of the problem space. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I got, you know, I was, I was getting lined up in the radiation machine um, and was pitching to the doctor cause he couldn't leave my side. <laughs> and next thing, you know, he told this pod and that pod, and then I got back to my oncologist and now my oncologist is working with me. And, um, I always say it's a, I just saw her the other, uh, the other day. And it's always weird because, you know, I have her giving me a, a gynecologist gynecological exam and then she's like let's talk business while I have no (laughs) pants on and I'm like oh this is strange (laughs) but But this is my new world this is my new world yes so um definitely odd not gonna lie but um hey it's a cool story right so absolutely our listeners love it right now (laughs) yeah (laughs) for sure but yeah so that's that's kind of how high ivy was birthed and then Um, I came up with kind of what I believed was a business model at the time. Um, And I actually did my first pitch on a whirlwind trip, 48 hour trip to New York. Mm -hmm. And I won it and I knew I had something to kind of go off of. That was in December of 2019. And uh, the company was incorporated in February in 2020. And everything the rest is history (laughs) wow yeah so what did you think the initial problem was how did you sum that up to the folks that have been living this day in day out like did they not know that this was a problem or it just wasn't enough of a pain point that came through from their clients to identify it as a problem it's a significant problem so um the focus initially was hysterectomies, hence the HY in high IV. So high was actually mm-hmm. based off of hysterectomies. Um, yeah. and when I started to do the research, um, I realized it wasn't just hysterectomies in, in cancer. It was menopause, postpartum, um, endometriosis, PCOS, all of these different things that women will go through. Um, and really trying to learn about the pelvic floor, like, you know, For me, you go through something called radiation stenosis, vaginal Mm -hmm. stenosis, and it's this 
development of scar tissue that slowly narrows your canal till it's shut. Women in menopause will go through menopausal atrophy where it's almost like the back of your, your heel, the callus that you have there, okay. your vaginal canal turns into like this hard calloused, mm. um, tissue, right. Okay. Um, that in like scar tissue kind of, yeah, okay. kind of like that, like dead cells essentially, right. Because mm. it's dry and it doesn't have the, the same environment. Um, as I started to look into it, you know, there's a vaginal canal, but surrounding that is all sorts of organs and muscles and other things that are involved in incontinence and pain and all these other things that are often overlapping with each other. And um, unfortunately, the way that we've done medicine, you know, not only do GPs and OBGYNs not really understand the world of pelvic health, it's very much a physiotherapy considered thing because it's very muscle focused, but mm. a lot of people just focus on incontinence and okay, you know, just strengthen the muscle or just put this pad on. And it's very isolated and siloed in how we treat things. Um, so we really wanted to look at it from a perspective of what is going on there and what are all the encompassing things that in, that are involved in what is happening in this pelvic floor region. Um, and so that's how we came up with the product that we have, um, but really trying to understand like, you know, how do these things interact with each other? How do they change from, you know, pre-menstruation all the way to post-menopause? Mm -hmm. Like women are going through such a significant change and we don't even realize it. Like, why do like, women having painful periods, like that's not normal. But yet we're told it's normal. Yeah. You have sex the first time or, you know, the first couple of times it's painful. Well, should it be? Have we ever really questioned that? That's a good question. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We have babies, depending on if you have a C-section or a vaginal birth, you're going to have these various symptoms. Well, what's going to happen to me after the fact? How can I prevent myself from happen this happening? Mm -hmm. Is there ways to prevent it? Well, there actually is, but nobody tells us these things. Menopause. Has anyone ever asked their mother what their menopause was like? I know I didn't. No. Right? No, definitely and didn't. yet, supposedly it's hereditary in how your mother goes through menopause is how you're going to go through menopause. Do you want to know what you're going to go through and, and how to prepare yourself for that? I would personally you know, love to. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but we don't talk about these things. Right. Mm -hmm. And when we go to the doctor, when these things happen, like we talked about at the very top of this, it's, it's very reactive. It's mm -hmm. not proactive. And so one thing that's happened is in France, they have actually comped on their quote unquote, oh, hip, like we have here in Ontario. Um, six pelvic floor therapy sessions before you give birth and six after you give birth. Wow. And they have proven to prevent women from having prolapse, from having tearing, from having all of these things that happen when you give birth um, and happen down the road when you have your you know, second child or head into menopause. Mm -hmm. um, so why are we not adopting these things? And secondly, this kind of understanding around what is the pelvic floor, often when you say you have pain um, and you go in, you know, either the doctor will say one of two things, drink some wine, relax, figure it out, or, which I've heard many times, um, or <laughs> do, your key, do your Kegels, do your, make sure that you're, you have control over your, your pelvic floor, not knowing that, you know, you have PCOS, I have cancer, if either of us do Kegels, we would actually make ourselves worse off than better off. And I did not know this. So this new concept, it's, it's relatively new, but it's definitely not widely adopted yet is this concept of hyper and hypotonic pelvic floor. Mm -hmm. And this distinction has gotten very me messy because often when you think vagina and pelvic health, it's, we'll do your Kegels, strengthen it, make it better. When people have dense muscles, tight muscles, 
lots of density in the tissue area, um, other challenges in, in the surrounding organs with pain, strengthening those muscles actually makes it worse off. It's like, if you have a sore, like a knot in your, in your shoulder, mm-hmm. you would go and get it massaged out. You wouldn't go yeah. to the gym and just like work it out some more. Pump it out that more. It gets better, right. Yeah. It's just going to get it's, worse. It's the same exact concept. So we have to isolate these two things. It's Kegels for hypo tonic pelvic floor. So after prolapse, after menopause, in some cases, after having a baby, when those muscles are stretched out and they need to be toned back up versus our women who most women who are dealing with pain, significant pain with intercourse and that type of thing, this is hypertonic and Mm. you got to get a massage girl. (laughs) You got to massage those muscles out. And Really, my my biggest thing is your first step is a pelvic floor physiotherapist. Like, mm-hmm. I will never, ever eliminate the need for these people. I think there needs to be more of them. There's only 5,400 of them in North America. We need more girls working in this space because it is so significantly important to have this type of medicine integrated into women's health. Um, they will tell you everything to do with your bladder, your your colon, your vagina, your surrounding muscles, they will touch points in your body that you have never had touched before. And you will go, wow, that is an experience. (laughs) I have never heard of this profession before ever. Yeah. Are they part of like gynecological clinics or how do you find these people? Yes. So they are physiotherapists um, by trait. They are trained, they go through, you know, kinesiology and everything else that, you know, normal people would go through um, in healthcare, uh, but go down a pathway of physiotherapy. And then they get specialized training in pelvic floor and pelvic health. Um, It is known by OBGYNs that pelvic floor physiotherapy is often something that women should do. They don't understand it fully. And I think that that's the problem that we're seeing is a lot of the times they will transfer someone to pelvic floor physio, um, but there's a disconnect between OBGYNs and those pelvic floor physiotherapists mm-hmm. um, and what who's supposed to do what, right? Um, and so insurance companies and all these people kind of have this misunderstanding of how they all work together. But essentially what they do is they will see you in person and they will check you like a physio, all your body on the outside, your posture, everything else. Um, But then they do work like an osteopath around the outside of your pelvic floor and, you know, moving your bowels and your muscles all the way from like your rib cage down. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they do internal work. And so they will actually go internal through the vagina or the anus and work on the muscles. And just like our, um, you know, shoulders or anything else we have tension there like if you think about it anyone who's listening are you tightening your vagina right now just think about it (laughs) and then like really like push it out like you don't realize that you actually often when you're sitting are holding tension there (laughs) I'm trying to do this right now (laughs) when you think about it too much it's like it becomes a thing right is this yeah what's happening here Mm -hmm. yeah so you we hold a lot of tension there because we're sitting on our butts half the day right and we have bad posture and we often think about the back and we think about you know your shoulders and everything but what about your pelvis what about your hips what about your tailbone um these are all areas that often can't be reached by the outside of your body right? Mm -hmm. So they go internally and will work on different muscles. And they actually, you could feel them working on the bands of muscles and the knots and stuff that are inside your pelvic bowl and um, are interconnected to your hips and all of these things. And Mm -hmm. we've got three bands of muscles in the entrance of the vagina, which often, you know, if you ever have trouble inserting a tampon or anything like that, that's what's happening is your muscles are are tensing up in those, 
in those uh, areas. So, wow. So the problem really is addressing, like you said, those siloed approaches that we see that many companies are addressing specific areas, but nothing is looking at the big picture. And that's where high IV is coming in is, you know, removing the silos and having you look at, you know, that holistic aspect of your entire pelvic region. So it's just not addressing, you know, one issue that you may have, because these things are absolutely interacting with each other. And that's where, you know, this holistic approach is really diving into your solution here at High Ivy. So what is that solution um, going forward? Yeah, so um, we've created a system around pelvic health and it includes three things. So the first is a device that is used by the patient. The second is a mobile app that's also used by the patient. And the third is a software that's actually used by their clinician. Mm -hmm. So the device is prescribed by the clinician and is given to the woman to take home with them. Mm -hmm. That device provides three therapies. The first is uh, self-lubrication. So we have a pod that is put into the device, punctured, and lubrication is delivered throughout the session. We do this because, um, think about, like, have you ever had a massage without oil? Yeah, it's just going to burn your skin. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Exactly. Same sort of concept. And you don't realize the stigma associated with lubrication. Like women Mm. think it's almost dirty or like, oh, I should be able to have enough. Um, It is so important for not only the health of your tissues, but also just the function and making it a more comfortable function. Yeah. So we really wanted to make it second thought. You have to use it. It's just part of the function, but realizing that it's really, really important in this, Mm. this whole picture. The second is a a thermal therapy. So right now we've worked on heating. Uh, We're working on also cooling. So think about like a heating pad that you put on any area of your body. That's why wouldn't we put it on that area as well? And what we found is not only does it help produce natural lubrication, but it also helps relax the surrounding muscles and the organs. Um, So it really helps Mm. prep you for um, this therapy. And we actually found the cold, on the other other hand, if you have any irritation, um, you have any sort of like bladder issues, really, really helps with that. So that's that. And the third therapy is the dilation therapy. So think of it, um, we have two pods uh, that we call, or chambers, we call them in the dilation system. So mm-hmm. essentially they inflate um, and they inflate at different different points. The inflation uh, is different because one is going to be closer to your pelvic floor muscle bands. One is going to be deeper into your classic cervix area. Um, So we really wanted to make it very gentle uh, Mm -hmm. versus kind of like a static sizing um, and be able to get kind of a 360 degree view of what are the tissues telling us? What are your muscles? You know, are they contracting voluntarily, involuntary? Um, and what are they saying to us? Mm -hmm. And so, um, each of these therapies, you know, 10 minutes heating, 10 minutes dilation, you know, two minutes of lubrication, whatever it is, is all set up by your doctor. The beauty of this is we started integrating sensors into it. So with the pressure and force sensor and the dilation, we also have the temperature sensors. Um, we're seeing a lot of unique data coming out of just those two things. Um, being able to put numbers to incontinence, which really hasn't been done much before. Um, we're seeing higher intervaginal temperatures than our girls who are, don't have any pelvic floor issues. We don't know what it means. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's just, it's crazy to think that we just haven't put sensors on things and stuck it in there and figured out what's going on. Yeah. Um, And so with those sensors um, and with the mechanical elements of the device uh, conducting the therapy, we collect all that data, we send it to the mobile phone, um, we pair it with subjective data. So we check in before and after session and say, 
how's your pain? How's your mental status? How's your physical mm-hmm. status? How are you feeling today? Um, how are you feeling after? How's your pain now? All the rest of it. And we pair that together. And then that data is collected and sent to your doctor. Um, and then that way your doctor can monitor you remotely. So mm-hmm. they could be at their office at the end of the day and just check in and see, you know, how is she doing today? Um, do I need to intervene in any way? And not have to go into the clinic and get a full uh, exam done again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's the system in a nutshell. Wow. So that's really addressing so many different things. And even if you don't necessarily have a problem in one area, it sort of opens that that door to just verify and double check that everything else elsewhere is doing well. Exactly. That's, I think that's incredible and such a different take on, I think health in general, because I think health in general is very isolated um, and siloed in a lot of ways. And I mean, I don't necessarily have anything against the healthcare system, but I think that's why I tend to, you know, go typically more towards like natural health and holistic medicine, because I do like that all encompassing approach because one thing does impact the other. And this is what you're doing here with high Ivy is saying, Hey, these things interact. Let's take a peek. Let's make sure everything is working together. And maybe there's a problem that needs to be tweaked here. That's truly the solution to the other one. Um, and, and that's how they come together. So this three step system, when would it be available and how, how will users, women of this product be, be able to use this in the future? Yeah, so we are going through um, all of the Health Canada and FDA pathways, um, unfortunately and fortunately. So I chose to go this direction part, partially because a lot of the products that are out there that women will see um, are not regulated and will be making medical claims um, because often they leverage the sex toy industry and what the sex toy industry doesn't have any FDA oversight, right? So if you see things like Kegel trackers or um, you know RF technology and all this stuff that's starting to come out, um, double check their claims, double check if they're in the regulatory system. Often they aren't. And often they're saying, you'll see results in 15 days. Well. Maybe you will, but these are ongoing issues. Like these are chronic mm-hmm. issues. Your muscles are not a static thing, right? Yeah. So um, for us, it was really important to go medical first because I wanted to make sure that our claims were verified and that it is safe and that it is actually doing what we want it to do. Um, so we are going through two clinical trials currently um, in which that will allow us to label the device for specific uses. Mm-hmm. So our goal is to have um, painful sex, so uh, invaginismus, endometriosis, and cancer uh, label uses for early 2023. That's our goal, um, is to get through all the regulatory approvals and the trials needed to, to prove that out and then say, this is cleared for use for these patient populations. Um, and as we move forward, you know, 2023, we're planning postpartum and menopause. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we're going to be looking into things like surgeries, urogyne, um, some of the psychosocial stuff like vulvodynia. Um, yeah, that's, uh, wow. that's the plan. I mean, 2023 is around the corner. I know we yes. just started <laughs> 2022, but it is February 28th. It's the last day of the second month. So yes. <laughs> things are going really fast. And this is really exciting to know. This journey only really started a few years ago. You yeah. only incorporated in 2020. And yeah. in 2023, you're going to have this ready to serve this demographic that's been suffering for so long and that have had siloed responses to challenges that they've had. And they're actually able to monitor things, not just from 
a physiological standpoint, but from, you know, what am I actually experiencing and be able to put those things together? Because like, you know, on your podcast, um, white coat warriors, um, you talk about, you talk about how, you know, when women say they're experiencing certain things, it's downplayed and it's, you know, just said it, this is normal. So this really gives people a voice at the table, um, in their own sort of way with, with high Ivy's product coming in 2023. Yep. Yep. Yeah. For sure. So with your case, with your, um, studies that you're doing right now for FDA and health Canada approvals, um, are you still looking for participants? Great question. Um, <laughs> so, I'd like to say yes, but at the mm-hmm. same time, it is very limited to patients that are a part of certain clinics. Okay. Um, so it is locked up and kind of locking key to whoever is patients of the clinics that we're working with. So it can't okay. really just be out to the, the general public, but we are hosting focus groups on our website. So, um, what we do is we have people sign up on our website as a patient or as a clinician. Um, and then you fill out some information. We usually get in contact with you and do an interview. So we talk to you a little and just get to know you one-on-one. Um, and then we funnel you into various focus groups. So our patient one, I think we're on our second stage. Uh, we've done a whole like medical analysis of our patients. Um, and we do a, uh, marketing analysis as well, like brand and colors and all the mm-hmm. things that we're collecting for uh, go to market launch. And then we're heading into our product focus group soon, um, but anyone can enter at any stage and we do pay people to go through those focus groups as well. So um, yeah, we give we give gifts out, we give discounts for the high heavy device in the future. And then I pay them about $50 per, per focus group. Wow. So if anyone listening would like to participate, they just have to go to highiv.com and yeah. sign up. Awesome. Exactly. So yeah. listeners, if you want to take part in Rachel's and High Ivy's um, focus groups, definitely go register at highivy.com and we'll have the link in the description. So don't worry about that. Um, but today has been such a journey. Um, <laughs> I loved our conversation today. And I love that we sort of culminated on, you know, a really great action for people that want to see a difference in this space and want to help contribute and feel like, you know, they're part of something that will change the future of women's health in, in such a unique way. And it's, and it's really exciting to be along on your journey as well. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. And thank you so much for giving us your personal journey, your personal stories, um, giving some really sweet nuggets of inspiration and how people can take control of, you know, their own personal health and start advocating for themselves and, you know, how they can continue to move forward in, in a brave way. So I really thank you for taking the time today to chat with us. And it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. Of course. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. So thank you everyone for listening and tuning in today. Um, don't forget to follow us um, at Buzzworthy on Spotify. We'll have all of Rachel's details available on our social media and on our website as we continue to build it out. And definitely um, register if you want to be part of her focus groups. I mean, you can't turn down $50 per session. So get registered and give Rachel a great hand as she builds out high ivy with her team thank you all for listening today give us a follow on social at at hamilton hive to stay tuned and know what's coming next and if you have entrepreneurs or projects in your mind and you want to know their stories let us know so we can reach out and help tell those stories that you want to hear more of 
finally, we want to thank our team of volunteers that make this podcast possible on a weekly basis. They are putting in the time, they're putting in these hours, and they are not paid for it. So huge shout out to Cesar Sardena, Harsh Patel, James Clark, Khalid Imam, Patricia Ford, and Ratri Tun. Our volunteers are listed on our website at, at hamiltonhive.ca slash podcast and check them out. See you next time.